Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 18 Something different for a recommendation, the YouTube channel Pop Goes the 60s, especially the videos covering this period in the Beatles' career. It's helped steer me in the right direction when researching this series. Entertaining and informative, as well as honest, the whole channel is worth checking out. We're nearly there, we're on the home straight, but the finishing line is not yet in sight. It's probably a symptom of the Beatles' more nocturnal habits that they're more productive towards the end of the day than they were in the morning. We have a bit more work on All Things Must Pass to work through, but remember the conversations are the most interesting part of these recordings and the main focus of our series. Soon you will have two full days covered in two seasons. If you don't want to binge on the rest of the episodes, here is a summary of episode 17. We rejoin the Beatles, minus Paul, attempting to play through a version of George's All Things Must Pass. John has almost got his organ part worked out, but the performance is still quite ragged. George explains about the rhythm of the song and its rhythmic pushes being inspired by the band's bassist, Rick Danko. John is engaged throughout, contrary to the common misconception that he was not interested in George's work. George politely asks Paul and Ringo to start joining in. After George explains the song's lyrical origins to John, he points out the Lowry glide switch on John's organ. John is impressed by this and uses it, often quite tunelessly, in the next performances of the song. Paul is now ready to learn the song too, so George painstakingly takes him through the chords. Paul quickly realises he's better off finding a melodic line rather than following the chords exactly. As George and Paul run through the changes of the song, they are joined by John on the drum kit doing his best to follow. It's notable that George doesn't dictate parts to Paul, but allows him to develop his own bass line, a sharp contrast to how Paul treats him. A tiny snippet of audio captures John and George noting that their candid conversations are being recorded, something I'm not sure they're too happy about. Ringo is back on the drums and the Beatles try a first full group performance of All Things Must Pass. But just before that, one of the crew approaches John to check his mic, which seems to also be giving electric shocks like George's was earlier. The performance is better, but lacks backing vocals, and there are a few timing errors. George pauses to suggest how the backing vocals should sound. He gives the example of Ray Charles's singers, the Raylettes. They try this. After quoting a guitar figure from last year's Back in the USSR, George asks for the backing vocals to be continuous like they were in John's Dear Prudence, which he's particularly impressed with. It's 4.45 and they begin another run-through, attempting to add the backing vocals. After initially praising the vocals, George quips, You're so full of shit, man before explaining that this is the line from the play The Beard that he'd been to see. This clip has been taken out of context in many Beatles books, but here you can hear it in its proper setting. 
another performance breaks down as John tests his mic, possibly because it's been exchanged for the shocking one, and distracts George. The tape cuts and some time seems to have elapsed. The harmonies are now coming together, but George's idea of a long extended note has been abandoned. The band performance is tighter, but they still struggle to follow George's odd timing and transitions between the chorus and back to the verses. The tape cuts again and we leave the Beatles with more rehearsal on this song still to go. This is where we now join the Beatles in the late afternoon on the Twickenham soundstage. Paul suggests George playing the guitar pickup on his own rather than the whole band trying to follow. Paul excels at this, effectively the band's arranger. Yeah, that we can just uh, yeah. George saying, all out, then back in. John, inspired perhaps by the religious overtones of the song, or the sound of his organ, gives us a mock Bible reading. The word was go, so they went. Perhaps he wants to go home or move on. The song is an earworm now for John. George playing that back in the USSR riff again. Uh, we're not going to do any oldies, but goldies on the show. Because I'd like to I do it. Nice. It would, you know, and also from the yeah. selling point of view. In America, you know, this is I was saying. For all these good goldies. I don't know, maybe it's all new or maybe it's a few, you know. This album, yeah, now we don't see any new You know, they would if they had the album and then saw it yeah. a week after. Yeah. But just to hit the first initial thing of us singing all completely new ones. They need something to identify with, apart from us. They need like... George supported from Michael Lindsay Hogg would like to have some older songs in the set. So it'd be nice to start the show or end the show with a couple of... We'll rock some up like Joe Cocker did. I've been doing help as he John thinks they should rock up some older songs and mentions help, which he's worked on as a slow song at home. Yoko agrees. I'll tell you which is a good one. Um, uh. George suggests one of their lesser known tracks from Beatles for Sale, Every Little Thing, but doesn't remember it too well. Michael's suggesting warming up the crowd with a little Richard medley. According to Solpy, it's a reference to the Beatles warming up for the Hey Jude filming. You hear Michael Lindsay Hogg say, when you were doing Jude. Michael flattering Paul, stating the Beatles are a great rock and roll group. 
George, reminded by that D chord in every little thing, to play Peace of My Heart, a hit for Irma Franklin, and more recently Janis Joplin. Written by Jerry Ragavoy and Bert Burns, Franklin, older sister of Aretha, recorded a version in the soul idiom, closer to the way that George is playing the song today. The more famous version of this song is by Big Brother and the Holding Company, featuring the vocals of Janis Joplin. This rocked-up version was a hit in 1968, although it's possible that George could be recalling the more sedate Dusty Springfield rendition of the same year. It seems to be the first time Michael has spoken directly with John also. John is saying they should do some rock and roll, if they don't write any. Which, of course, they will do. That band, uh, that band, uh, Bonnie and Delaney, was the last one. Zach Falcon's More together Between you and God. Well, he's on my side, should be alright, he's fixed. You've given him a cigar, you've him a cigar. Really exciting. Yes. Two conversations now. Michael Lindsay Hogg inquiring whether he was captured having that discussion, then remarking that God is on his side. George references Delaney and Bonnie, a band he will eventually go on tour with, once again contrasting their togetherness with the Beatles' apparent dysfunction. I think when we've done a month of this, um, we do the album, and somehow we should either use what we the togetherness to do the album. John suggesting the Beatles go straight into recording an album after the show, forgetting that Ringo won't be available. Salpy suggests that John wants to record this material as an album. I disagree. I think he's suggesting using the momentum of having played a live show to go straight into recording a follow-up album of new material. Later in 1969, Keith Richards will use downtime in the Rolling Stones US tour to do some recording in the same spirit of capturing the band when they were tight. Not sure if John means split up as in break up the band or take a break. Paul outlines his vision for the future of the band and re-energising the group. George is saying that once they have learnt the new material, they'll enjoy it. But up till then, it's hard work. Much of this is obscured by John attempting to play Sabre Dance, a current top 10 hit by Love Sculpture, which was also on last night's Top of the Pops. Welsh blues rock band Love Sculpture were a power trio led by guitarist Dave Edmonds. Formed in 1966, the band's repertoire was largely high-energy but predictable blues covers. Inspired by Keith Emerson's classical rearrangements in The Nice, Love Sculpture hit upon a high-speed cover of Sabre Dance, a classical piece by Aram Kakachurian. It got to number five in the UK singles chart. Love Sculpture split in 1970, but Edmonds went on to have a fruitful career as a musician and producer of other artists. I 
through that bit of shit at the meeting until we get together again. Note the mics have moved to capture more conversation. Yeah, I can see it just, uh, we were just working. Uh, and also, there's so much to get out, you know. George is really just stating a kind of no pain, no gain point of view. They have to go through the tedium to get to the place where they enjoy playing. He likens it to an Apple meeting, but he shows commitment to the band by stating that there's no one better to put out their material than them. commenting that the White Album was a more enjoyable album for him as he felt more involved in the creative process. He had been largely absent during much of Sgt Pepper. What's all this? Uh, what's all this? There has been a considerable amount of clinking of glasses during these conversations. We now find out why. Give us a drink, mister. Did you play that much? You might just... Is that yours? No, no, whatever everyone's having. Dennis O'Dell can be heard in the background. What are they all having? Pale? 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 Yeah. Anybody else want a drink? Yes, yes. I'll have a glass of white wine. White wine for George, beer for John. Six? <laughs> All right, man. Stop. Kevin, Kevin, uh, I, I think you should maybe just get me one of these straight bridges for now until I get that other one. Because this, there's so much, you know, it's such a good guitar to play. And can you get, get me some uh, machine heads? Machine heads are these key things. See, like that on there. In fact, like on the other one, that gives the line. The big one. George now discussing getting some accessories for Lucy. He liked the guitar, but he wants to fix the tuning problems first identified by its previous owner, Rick Derringer. Paul, inspired by John's chords, improvises this simple blues-inspired tune. you want to learn on the road to Marrakesh. George asks John if he has anything to teach them. John says he's nothing finished unless they want to learn on the road to Marrakesh, which they tried yesterday. George says he knows this. <laughs> Yeah, see, I've got quite a few like that. Again, yeah, you know. That tempo, yeah. Songs for swinging lovers. No, no. Only like singing the chorus that don't let me down. Apart from anything else. 
The issue of not enough fast material is discussed again and George suggests that maybe that could be the concept of the show. Slow songs like Ella Fitzgerald or, as Paul puts it, Songs for Swinging Lovers, a Frank Sinatra album. John is not too enthusiastic about his own material, apart from Don't Let Me Down. Oh, well, it's a, a job. Slow ones, I'd like to sing them all, but, you know, yeah. you know, I don't mind if we end up doing, like, after a school session. No, I don't. If, if we just get something different happening in each one. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's uh, different to their choice. Another. Paul suggests going back over one after nine oh nine. George remembers the arrangement better than the others. Then the solo, if you have a solo, I think you should go into E. Into the middle end. Uh, Slate 54, take one. The time is now 10 after 5. It's 5.10. I want to get... See, the thing with, like, uh... The nice one, then fast Not bad, though. Good try, that. Yeah, but you know... In the background, Paul talking to Tony Richmond, director of photography, and Michael Lindsay-Hogg. Tony Richmond, also known as Anthony B. Richmond, served as director of photography for the Get Back Project. His story is interesting not only for the abundance of good luck that directed his career, but also because it ties together a number of threads that led to the whole production team being assembled at this moment. Tony was just 26 when he was recruited to help stage and film the Beatles rehearsals and potential live show. However, he already had an impressive CV, working with many high-profile artists and performers. His career in film started as a messenger boy for Associated British Cinemas, the company George had mentioned being bought out by EMI earlier. From there he moved to Pathé News and was promoted to the camera department. It was here he formed a friendship with Nicholas Rogue, which would later bear great artistic fruit for both of them. Tony moved from Pathé to Danzinger Brothers Studios. He made B-features on a strict seven-day turnaround. The discipline required stood him in good stead. He worked as assistant cameraman on the James Bond movie From Russia With Love when the original hiring fell sick. This boost enabled him to get work at Hammer Studios where he worked on four films meeting Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. At Hammer he was mentored by cinematographer John Wilcox who took him to Israel to work on the Peter Finch Sophia Lauren vehicle Judith. Interesting offers continued and he was employed as a focus puller on Peter Sellers version of Casino Royale, a film we have also discussed in this series. His and Nicholas Rogue's paths crossed again. Rogue was directing commercials at this point but when he moved to America Richmond was unable to follow. However, John Schlesinger recruited him to travel to Israel again, this time as a documentary maker filming the events of the Six Day War. Tony's first role as a director of photography came when Basil Dearden, on the recommendation of John Schlesinger, offered him the job of DP for the David Hemmings Richard Attenborough caper movie called Only When I Laugh, spelled L-A-R-F. The title sequence of this movie was farmed out to another company, but the studio insisted that Tony remain as director of photographer. 
The director of the film's titles was the American Michael Lindsay Hogg. They respected each other enough that one weekend Michael offered Tony some extra paid work, filming the Rolling Stones promo clips for Jumping Jack Flash and Child of the Moon. The Stones' connection led to Tony working with Jean-Luc Godard, filming the band recording Sympathy for the Devil, for the film entitled One Plus One. The format of this movie, following the evolution of one song, is very much what Paul has in mind for the Get Back project. Acting as Clapperloader on the Stones film was one Les Parrott, also now part of the Beatles film crew. An interesting side note, Goddard's next project was in the US with D.A. Pennebaker. It was for an unreleased movie entitled 1AM. The central part of that movie was a performance by the Jefferson Airplane on the rooftop of the nine-storey Shiloh Hotel, close to Times Square. That was eventually shut down by the police. If Tony was aware of this, it's a seductive notion that perhaps he and Michael Lindsay Hogg discussed the Beatles doing something similar. From the One Plus One movie, Tony reconnected with Michael Lindsay Hogg to film the Rolling Stones yet again for their rock and roll circus. This established the creative team of Richmond, Hogg and Glyn Johns, who were then transplanted straight into the Beatles' new project. John, the thing for, with bet, the difference between me and the difference between me and say Eric has been that I'm just another guitar, sometimes playing bits and sometimes singing, and like you, sometimes singing and sometimes playing bits. But he's just had been the only guitar to play lead. And so he's like playing, that's how you can keep it going all the time. George explaining the difference between him and Eric Clapton. Yes. So, you know, I, can, I feel now I can play things, I can learn things that will sound okay, but I could never sustain it on that unless I joined the Big Three to yeah. for a bit. A reference to the Big Three, another Liverpool band in the early 60s. The Big Three were known as one of Liverpool's loudest, most aggressive and visually appealing acts. Epstein arranged for an audition with Decca Records, where they recorded Some Other Guy, which became a minor hit. However, a split with Epstein and frequent lineup changes stopped them capitalising on their success. Still, George is using them here as a benchmark for musicianship. It's just a matter of learning the George does himself a disservice here. Clapton is a virtuoso, but only really in one idiom. George's chord and harmonic knowledge is probably greater. Yeah, but it's more than that. Yeah, it's like to, to, to sustain something for a long time, okay. doing, especially fast fingering like that. Now that's where he wins over all the others, because even over them, Albert King's name is much better than them, because he wasn't as fast as this Taj Mahal but John mentions Taj Mahal here, who had appeared on the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus last month. John rates his guitar playing, although in the released version of the show, he doesn't play guitar. That job is taken by future Lennon collaborator, Jesse Ed Davis. He's good at that thing, which I'm not good at, and that's like sustaining, and within that, you know, like a lot of guitarists can sustain even, but they play like a lot of shit, but his thing takes on a pattern you know, and gets somewhere and resolves itself, which is very odd. Undeterred, George continues to sing Eric's praises, turning to Paul to repeat his point. This jazz, man. Mm. Just Eric, you know, like, for whatever, for his thing that he does, is very good at that, you know, at, like, improvising and keeping it going yeah. and needing something to do with jazz. Improvise, yeah. yeah. Yoko commenting here, but it's barely audible. I saw some, some of that jazz at the moment. There was one show where they didn't just show one band, they showed little bits of everyone. Paul and John appear to have watched a television show last night called Jazz at the Malting. <laughs> Sorry about that. Some of it was great. Yeah. I don't really like jazz, but I didn't like last night. Ringo saw it too, but didn't like last night's. Jazz. Paul and Michael don't like jazz. Jazz, jazz. Yeah, but what, it's, it's nice to see when the band's spot on, though. Yeah. Like that. Drummer's band, Buddy Rich. 
No comment from Yoko here, who actually has recorded with Ornette Coleman. George sums up his views on jazz quite succinctly. Yeah. I've seen a few of them getting at it um, recently. The best band I saw yeah, was Ray John's band. I don't yeah. know. I mean, that's I don't jazz. Really. Really. Moves me or affects me in any way whatsoever at all. Until I I remember, like, when I was in New York, I was 16, no. I'd go out. Well, you know, because when he was like the big scene, and listen to it, I wouldn't have been able to dig it. I thought it was Yeah. Just see it now. It's fantastic. Because it's like, you know, when you make a record and you get. You know, you get the rhythm section very together, English, and then you bring the jazz, the English, brass in, get them together, and then you get the singers and get them together. But they're just like that all the time. You know, it's like as if you just stick a mic there and record it. It's fantastic. This leads him to discuss Ray Charles's band, who he saw recently, and then out of the blue, he mentions Billy Preston. Billy Preston as to what he's better no than John through him because he's like turning six or something and he's and no kind of fantastic. Here we've got no basically got no identifiable steady rhythm. Too much because he plays organ. It's so great, you know. Ray Charles doesn't bother with the organ now. He just I'll leave it to the young guy. I'm going to, you know, too much. Billy just plays and he does his plays Chris piano with the band. Then Rachel, then he does his own spot where he sings and dances and plays Chris. organ solo. Yeah. Then he goes and sits on the organ and Ray Charles comes on. And then Elvis Presley. Ray Charles does his bit and Billy backs him. I think a little too much has been read into this discussion, and the line, "I'm sure you'll dig him when you see him." At this point, George has no idea where Billy Preston is. For this segment, I am indebted to Tony Barrell for his book, The Beatles on the Roof. As with many stories surrounding the Get Back project, there is a lot of oversimplification at best, or misinformation at worst. With regards to how Billy Preston was invited to play with the Beatles, many books and websites, even the esteemed Beatles Bible, tell this tale, which I've transcribed from ultimateclassicrock.com. When George Harrison, who had briefly quit the Beatles spoiler alert, in early 1969, decided to return to the band, he brought with him a secret weapon, keyboardist Billy Preston. During his break from the group, Harrison caught a performance by Ray Charles in London. On the stage that night was Preston, whom Harrison and his fellow Beatles had befriended during their years in Hamburg. Excited to see his old pal, Harrison sent Preston a message inviting him to join the Beatles in the studio. It sounds plausible enough, doesn't it? George goes to a concert and has a light bulb moment and invites Billy to join him on his return to the Beatles. If you think about it for more than a few seconds, however, there is a flaw. We're expected to believe that on this offer to work with the Beatles, Billy Preston abruptly left Ray Charles mid-tour. Couple this to the fact that Ray Charles doesn't even have any London shows listed in January 1969, but is appearing on TV in Europe and America. You can begin to see that this tale doesn't stack up terribly well. Curiously, Billy Preston is very poorly served by biographers. There doesn't appear to be any books about him apart from one work of Beatle-related fiction. A bit of research led me to find out exactly where Billy was in January 1969. BBC Two's long-running entertainment show, Talk of the Town, began in September 1969 and featured showcase performances from a variety of performers. The first show featured Sammy Davis Jr. Billy Preston was booked to record his appearance on the 19th of January 1969. 
This is three days before his first session with the Beatles in Savile Row. It is reasonable to assume that this is when George got a message to Billy. So where does this story of the Ray Charles concert come from? It seems that two events have been conflated. George is captured on tape here talking about seeing Ray Charles in concert and about Billy Preston's performance. Even this doesn't fit with the timeline since George is still in the band at this point. In fact, George is referring to a concert at the Royal Festival Hall on September 21st, 1968, which he attended. It seems that somehow this event and the recruiting of Billy have got connected by some biographers. In the Beatles anthology series, George states that he put word out to see if Billy was in town. But even this isn't 100% accurate. Beatle aide and Apple employee Chris O'Dell relates in her autobiography that she mentioned to George that Billy was in town and this inspired him to track the organist down. So whilst in retrospect it seems oddly prescient that George is talking about a keyboard player who would very quickly be working with the band, almost like he could see into the future, George in fact has been talking about a number of musicians in similarly glowing terms this afternoon. It was a complete coincidence that Billy Preston happened to be in London at the time. It certainly wasn't planned that way by George. If Garth Hudson of the band had arrived in London at precisely that point, it is equally likely George would have jumped at the chance to invite him to sit in with the Beatles. We will discuss Billy's history later in the series, but for now I thought it important to explore yet another Beatle myth. the band I've Been Good To You by The Miracles. Written by lead singer Smokey Robinson, I've Been Good To You was released in 1961 as the B-side of their top 40 hit What's So Good About Goodbye. It's another example of the Beatles' desire during their early career to seek out lesser-known songs that other bands wouldn't be playing and its appearance here is indicative of George's desire, aside from the influence of the band, to add a soul flavour to the Beatles' sound. That's Paul focusing the band's attention back onto All Things Must Pass. Glossing over bits we're not getting right to stop us whenever it doesn't go right. Paul trying to get George to work the same way he does. The only thing, uh, you know, it's sounding all right. Or if you can think yes, of any riffs, so try and sing them all. Yeah, right. Yeah, you expect it to sort of be somewhere else. Ringo asked George to clarify the rhythm. With, with, with all this, it's like with the backing and that, as long as you know the chords and the changes and you're not playing any wrong notes or anything, it's fine. It's just a matter of the more you know it, the more you can feel out, you know. But the, uh, the middle bit, because it says the same word first, 
like old things must pass away, then... Where we'd overdub something or add voices or I'd track it or you know there's something could come in there to make a make it a bit move a bit more. George highlighting a point they've noted already. They're still thinking in terms of making records, not a live performance. And the bit uh Very like restrained, rather than like. Maybe it's better if we just do it straight. First of all, just all things. See, it should be as if I'm But just to get it, you know, to get the chords and that. Okay. Just to do everything, just really mechanical, and then we can sort of get it all good after that. You know. George is trying to ask for there is for the backing vocals to be behind the beat. Another run through. Okay, now there's where it goes. Paul highlighting that the pickup is in an odd meter. Now, just tell us what you're doing there, because I, I expected to go, all things must pass away. It's like, you know, like the intro, yes. in between every verse, the intro, which is just one of them, is... So at the end of the first verse is... if you like and just have a guitar doing the bit so you'd all end on George offers a solution of playing that part on his own which Paul has suggested earlier John likens it to gospel music the band have the full arrangement down George is now working more on details a bit stuck in. Uh, Paul said he thought he should have a bit more between the repeating line. I don't know if you noticed, so it went. I think you should come in for this bit. It's good where you drop out after the first verse. You know, uh, you drop out after fade away and leave that. Then it's sunset doesn't last. But after the end of the second verse, I think you shouldn't drop out because it's, it's yeah. Okay. <coughs> hmm. That's good. It's better with the brakes too because it doesn't throw you. Yeah, so. Are we all I'm seeing the melody on. No, no, we should go into threes though. Go into threes, meaning three-part harmony. On that, yeah, it sounded like the Chambers Sisters, the Blind Brothers. Yeah, it's a hell of a long breath, you know. Yeah. 
And you just sing that on your own. And then I'd know I wouldn't sing that line. I'd just sing that all things must pass away. Yeah. Okay. For us not to try and join in with that. Just keep going with the other. be good if you're carrying on where I come in then you can get a quick breath for away if you if you need the breath yeah just try that bit George going back to its original harmony idea but the long note is difficult for John to maintain when you drop out there too because I change the, the thing sometimes it's just straight yeah. or sometimes it's not yeah doing it and there's no overdubs or you can't get out of it it's much better really because you know that you know all the time recording we start yeah. you like you're thinking oh it's all right we can do that later once again george highlighting the difference between recording and live performance and why rehearsal is going to be so laborious so you never get even the most out of that moment really All things must pass away. What was that? What was that? What was that? What was that? Microbiotic pills are good at arriving at the right time. Improvised lyrics from George. psychedelia in it, you know, yeah. you know, yeah. social comment like, it looks like it on the table. a miner can blow these clouds. John commenting on George's psychedelic lyrics. John giving instructions to George for settings on his, i.e. John's, casino guitar. George points out a knob is broken. John will end up with one black and three gold knobs. so much gear on stage with them, like echoes, yeah, phasing, tapes, and they do it live, you know, they do their overdubs, because they're phased and echoed live, you know, but we're still thinking of it in terms of the four guys and four amps they have, we can have also... John asking for a phasing effect on the live show. George discussing here a Leslie speaker for the guitar that Eric Clapton has. George used it on the Cream Song badge. 
When the Beatles move to Savile Row, they will acquire one. Presumably, this is Eric's. The phasing machine, which John has asked for, appears to be an invention of Magic Alex, the Apple electronics head, who, as George says, will be installing this next week. I don't think we hear about this again, and there isn't any phasing used in the subsequent album. suggesting using the tremolo channel on the amp. George is still unsatisfied with this guitar sound. Just try it. What? Try what? Just try him on tremolo. Tremolo. Oh, you're in your own amp, setting is now on. Another run through of All Things Must Pass. All things must pass away. John and Paul opting to not sing the long note on the backing vocal. The tape cuts and the Beatles finish for today on All Things Must Pass. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Bye.